Where'd your face go? There you are. There it is. Welcome, <gasps> Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Yay. We're glad you're here. We're glad that are. we are here. My notes just went all cattywampus. Hold on. Okay, we're good. Oh, yay. Okay. Now I can see your face and I can see my notes. <gasps> Perfect. Nice. We are joined today temporarily by Murder Boxer and Aww. Murder Husband. Hello. Murder Beagle is in the other room being okay. grumpy. Well, really? He's mm. just, he gets grumpy it. when it rains all day. Yeah, my whole house is a little bit just off kilter today because my beautiful spouse got his second yeah. shot yesterday. He feeling it? He's feeling it, although he's not feeling it as badly as I did or or he's just being a real trooper. I think probably he's just being a real trooper. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he typically is. So, you know. He really is a trooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I was such a pile. So we've just been, we packed like all day. And I'm like, go to bed, buddy. But oh, yeah, you guys bought he's a, a house. Trooper. We you did. House. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now we have to move. Ah! <laughs> Which is crazy. Welcome to hell. I know. Moving is the worst, but I've never been so excited about a move in my entire life. This house yeah. is. Made for Midwretched. I have like a vision for my pod den. I already picked out a couple of contenders on the paint color. And um, it's just going to be beautiful. And I think it is fitting to produce a murder podcast in a house that is from 1870. Because it's like it's old and spooky. And I just think that's perfect. But we've got bins full of stuff, and we are definitely setting up to live out of suitcases for a couple of weeks, which is fine. That's fine. Because you can, I'd rather have everything packed up, you know, than be scrambling later. So. You can drag one of those suitcases up to visit me, you know, whenever. I want to. We still ha- we talk about this every weekend, and we still haven't, like, talked offline about a date Do yet. Do it next weekend. What? I'll check my schedule, but Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, how do we segue into this case? This case is, um, it's a bruiser, to be honest. Yeah, it is. This is kind of a strange case. I don't know if there's any good way to segue. Sometimes, you know, we just have to settle that there is no smooth segue. Yeah, I don't really either. I've been thinking a lot about this case today because I knew it pretty well, too. So this is going to be a little bit more of a give and take than usual, although I, I promise mm-hmm. I'll like sit back and shut up and listen too. But, no, but it's I a today spent a lot of time sucked into um, this Facebook page for a local group of uh, people that do like civilian stings for predators, like sexual predators. And they're interesting. I, I feel questions about those groups. Yeah, I do too. And that was what was interesting about it. So like they operate in like the kind of the tri-county area around here mm-hmm. from what I could gather. And they basically just like they have people that act as decoys. They have um, they get like volunteers of like, you know, better looking guys to use for their pictures and stuff like that. And they have volunteers to like act like younger girls on the phone, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they go and bust these guys. But like it- – but. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's like, then what, though? You know? Exactly. Like, then, okay, like, where's your evidence for this? Mm-hmm. What do you do after that? What are you hoping to accomplish with this? I don't know. It's just, it's a lot of vigilante bullshit. Yeah. It feels like to yeah, me. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I respect the spirit of it. 
because um, I think they're authentically trying to do good. And then one of the local PDs released a statement that was like, please cease like these types of operations because it can impede with um, official investigations going on and official um, yeah. judicial proceedings and stuff like that, yeah. which is totally true. But then you run into this thing where it's like, okay, if I know that something is going on, even if I created the situation, I have a responsibility, and we are in the state of Indiana, which is a mandatory reporting state. Mm-hmm. I have a responsibility now to like deal with this, but they're not actually dealing with any minors in the scope of these like stings, you know. So wait, what are they stinging? Well, they're stinging the men. Like the they're men pretending that are to be accused. Yeah. By who? Well, they are creating those scenarios from what I can tell. See, like, they might get, like, a tip or something, but they are I think they're creating the situation. I don't know. I just... You're creating a situation for you to feel like a hero in with mm. what evidence to go on. And if it's a mandatory yeah. reporting state, why don't you do the actual thing and report to the authorities? Like, it just... It yeah. feels like... I'm trying to be, have, like, big dick justice and feel like a big person, <laughs> but there's no actual leverage behind anything that I do. There's no authority. I have yeah. no actual authority other than I want to feel like I'm fucking swinging my dick around. Yeah, it's the it's the no actual authority and then the questionable admissibility of any of that in court that gives me more pause. Like, I don't really, I mean, big dick energy aside, like... I guess my, my question is, like, okay, like, you, you know, for instance, they recently, like, set up a guy to meet them posing as a 14-year-old in the casino parking lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, like, again, like, now what? Like, can you take this, like, judiciously and legally, I don't know the answer about what, like, civilian made evidence can do in a court of law nothing like when it's kind of crafted nothing yeah. because then whoever you caught can just be like well i knew that this was i knew that this was fake yeah like what are you gonna do just beat him up in the parking lot yeah and that's what's interesting about it is that they're like a biker group so they look like real scary guys for sure like when you show up i'd imagine you're like oh my god you know I just, like what's the point well, I think there's – we were talking about it here, like, trying to find cases with, like, an uh, authentic – scare quotes – authentic sense of, like, vigilantism. And the only one that we could come up with was Skidmore, the original Skidmore case. Yeah, yeah. But then you have to wonder, like – I just wonder what's the kind of function of, you know, vigilante justice, especially in communities where there's – nothing else happening like ken rex mcelroy was escaping the law left and right exactly but i don't know how that necessarily functions in this space but i spent a lot of time on their facebook page today i don't know i i know of those groups and to me it's a bunch of people wanting to feel big and tough but Mm. there's nothing it doesn't feel like they're actually accomplishing anything yeah yeah, I don't know. I need to spend some more time and craft an opinion, but definitely felt like food for thought. I was listening to the Voices for Justice podcast. Mm-hmm. Fucking wonderful. Yeah. To me, okay, so take that spirit, I guess, with 
like of these vigilante groups and I feel like I get that from like the Voices for Justice podcast and Murder Squad Mm. who are just like here's these stories and here's how you can actually help and yeah like in a real way in like a real way and a legal way in a way that actually helps authorities rather than hinders them but she covered the Elizabeth Smart case and normally like Mm. she only does unsolved cases but this one was just kind of one to be like hey like this type of work actually does help save people like the reason why we saved Elizabeth Smart was because of the support of John Walsh and getting her name and face Mm. out in the public and god I love John Walsh yeah he's problematic but you know I know but he's hot (laughs) God, you have such a type. I do not. You so yeah, do. do. Um, <laughs> but like because people like saw her face and reported it to the right authorities, that's how she got yeah. saved. Not by some fucking like bro living in somebody's basement that decides he's going to troll pred- what he thinks are predators online and what beat them up in yeah. a parking lot. Yeah. And then I think you have to wonder too about like – like, when you craft or create that situation, like, would that situation have happened otherwise? And I think nine times out of ten, it would. I don't know, but because I've seen cases. On the occasion, yeah, yeah. I've seen cases where they go so far that they actually push mm-hmm. people that weren't, that have no history of predation, into yeah. the situation. Yeah, there's a great documentary called Pervert Park, which is a terrible title for a great documentary. It is. One. It's good. It, it's really hard to watch, yeah. but it's really good. Uh, and one of the guys on there, if he's telling the truth, like went through that. Like he was on a to catch a predator style sting, and he had never done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. And the person on the other end was like really pushing him, like you know you want to meet, you know you want to meet me, you know you want to see me. And he finally was like, okay, let's meet up. And then you know, and now he's like a in trouble forever. Well, even like when police do that, they have very specific like boundaries and things they're allowed to say and things they're not allowed to say because that mm-hmm. that's what's accepted in a court of law. So, yeah, and they're trained to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, so all that to say, I've been thinking a lot about these issues today <laughs> and it feels very relevant to your case. So let's use that to segue into a time and place where none of these laws or regulations existed. And we had really no understanding of childhood predation or serial pedophiles. Not that they didn't exist, but we didn't have the language or the kind of organized understanding of what was going on out there. Amen. Let's do this. We're going to dive right into the case of Johnny Gosh. Yes. Let's go. This is, like I said, one of those kind of really big cases that came about in like the late 70s, early 80s. That is the reason why parenting and child rearing changed. And the reason why Tommy is a helicopter parent. (laughs) Why helicopter parents? By and large, yes, (laughs) yes, yes. I'll totally admit to that. Absolutely. Speaking of um, John Walsh, Adam Walsh's case, the disappearance of his Mm -hmm. son Adam Walsh was another one of the cases that kind of led to this and this idea of stranger danger and why we don't let kids just kind of roam around free as much as we used to anymore. Totally. That's so interesting. It's such a different 
era and you think about all the other cases that kind of bubbled up in like the late 70s early 80s like the snowman's children Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and they just changed the landscape of so many things Mm -hmm. one of the things that we're going to talk about with the case of johnny gosh is that there were no regulations in conducting these searches when kids would disappear Mm -hmm. there was no amber alert there was no registry of missing children there was still a 72-hour law where you had to wait 72 hours or 48 hours, depending on the state, um, before you started investigating a missing child. And it was because of Johnny Gosh's parents, John and Noreen, that these laws changed and that we have kind of an organized way of going about this. Yes. So as I'm saying that, while we go over this case... You, lovely listeners, are going to have feelings. (laughs) Yes. Yes, you will. (laughs) You are going to have feelings about Noreen and about John. And I have feelings, too. (laughs) We're going to talk about our feelings. I'm here to be a Noreen stan, because I totally am. Really? So. Uh, I can't. Well, that's why. That's why this, I'm here. this is this is why it's a collab. I'm the yin to your yang on this one. Yep. This is why it's a collab. But you're gonna have feelings about yep. both of them, and no matter what your feelings are, I think it's incredibly important to remember how much the two of these parents did to change yeah. the world of criminal investigations. Absolutely, absolutely. Ugh. So this is a pretty well-known case. And like with a lot of well-known cases that we get into, there's a lot of myth and misinformation and a lot of myth. This case is going to go places and you're going to have yes. opinions. Um, yes. And I will say this right out. To me, there are not even enough facts to have a theory. Mm, that's interesting. There, There is so little hard evidence in this case that it... It angers me. Yeah. And theories are largely, in this case, are like very much so based on conjecture. Based on conjecture and eyewitness testimony, which we know is so painfully flawed. Hmm. So, ugh. It's just really hard to parse everything out. Yeah. What we're going to do, and kind of give you a structure of this case now that we've kind of just, you know, pre-gamed for Girl, it. I'll get into I'm it. I'm trying. <laughs> I told you I have so many feelings about this case, and most of them are anger. I know. Uh, I know. But so we're going to go over kind of what, what is the commonly told story about what happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the quote unquote facts of the day. And then we're going to talk about some of the bigger theories and conspiracies. And then we're going to kind of circle back around to some of the more recent information from testimony of people that were there that day. Mm, that has kind perfect. of come out more recently. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to give a lot of credit to amongst many, many other resources on here. Um, the Faded Out podcast mm. that spent like 35 episodes covering this case. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's flawed in a lot of ways, but it's a good series. Noreen does not like it. Ah, interesting. Noreen okay. um, kind of threatened the host of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, Oof. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk about <laughs> feelings. All right. Yeah. But yeah. more importantly, let's talk about this family. Let's talk about the Gashes. Yes. I, I, I feel weird about this case because everybody talks about the case and nobody ever really talks about Johnny. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get to know him very well. Yeah. Or about John or Noreen. So I want to talk a little bit about them. So John Gosh Sr. seems like a very straight up solid Midwestern guy. Yeah, he really does. (laughs) Like he is a very blunt person when you hear him talk in interviews. Mm -hmm. He does not take bait, which I think is a good strength of his. Um, Yeah. Listening to more recent interviews with him. So in terms of spoilers, John and Noreen have since divorced. Um, since mm. this case, I think in the 90s, they divorced. And his he is very upfront about his feelings about certain things. He explains how his kind of reports have changed over time, and it makes sense to me. But as mm. much as he is kind of described as very blunt and very kind of like straight shooter dad, he was also like really caring. He was He loved spending time with Johnny. He was described... Johnny had a paper route, which is how he went missing. And John Sr. would typically walk with Johnny on the paper route. He would, you know, walk him through. Here's how you collect money from people. Here's how you do this. He was described as a pretty good friend even years after Johnny's disappearance. John is said that he would go out of his way to go check in on his friends and make sure that he's involved in their kids' lives and, you know, just wanting to still be kind of like a neighborhood presence Um, yeah but the people that kind of knew him and in listening to recent interviews with him you can kind of feel the sadness in his tone of like you know if he's talking about a friend's family you can kind of feel how sad he is about it yeah yeah noreen gosh um before she married john she was actually previously married and her story is actually kind of sad by itself yeah, it really. She's is. been through a lot of tragedy. She, prior to marrying John, she had two children with her first marriage. Um, her first husband was diagnosed with cancer one summer, and that same summer that her husband was diagnosed with cancer, a tornado swept through their home and tore their house apart. Yeah. And I think that I just think that this is really interesting, and I think it's kind of a bit of an insight into kind of her psyche. So a tornado kind of tears her house down. Um, and after the storm passes, her two sons go missing and she had to kind of run and sweep through property trying to find her two kids. And she tells the story about kind of like, oh, she's searching the property, you know, looking for her kids, tearing apart the kind of debris, the wind and the rain start picking up and she suddenly starts hearing her two children kind of crying and screaming because the everything was kind of flying around and hitting them again and she said that them hearing them crying was the sweetest thing she could have heard because it meant that they were alive oh it's kind of a rough story to hear and then so after that event um they get their house kind of fixed and rebuilt boys recover but it's just a few weeks after that that her husband died of cancer gosh yeah that's so rough yeah that's so tough so It seems like she kind of really struggled with some depression and some grief and coping with that loss and that trauma. Yeah, understandably so. (laughs) Understandably so. And I think that it was, it took a bit of a toll on her. At one point um, in one of the documentaries, 
in the Who Took Johnny documentary, she talks about that at one point she was like just struggling to get out of bed, feeling very kind of mm-hmm. like lethargic and sickly. And at one point, one of her sons comes up to her and asks, are you going to die like daddy? Wow. And I think kind of after hearing that, that kind of just like jarred her. Yeah. As, as I think it would to any parent kind of get her oh, back yeah. together. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, there's a point at which I think any parent that goes through a situation like that, like a, a big loss of like a spouse or something like that, like they'll tell you that there's a, a certain point at which you do just kind of rally and like mm-hmm. shove your own stuff aside, you know? Yeah. Especially when you have young kids and, mm-hmm. but again, kind of not trying to, we have a lot to cover, so I can't spend too much time on yeah. all of this. As she kind of like started to heal and started on that journey, eventually a friend introduces her to John Gosh and the two eventually marry. Her two older sons um, were n- kind of noticeably older at this point. And one thing that's mm. interesting to me is I never hear the two of them, their names ever mentioned or included in anything. I haven't either. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's by their choice and whatever, but it, I just always thought it was kind of interesting. I've never once heard their yeah, names. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I could see from the perspective of a just terrified parent, like, mm-hmm. just not wanting to expose your other kids in any way yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I've always been curious kind of about, like, where are these two older kids? I'm guessing they were adults by the time that Johnny was 12, so. Mm. Yeah, maybe, like, young adults. Young adults in college or something. So... Noreen and John have their youngest son, Johnny. It's John's only child. Um, Noreen's third, obviously. Um, Noreen, I thought that this was kind of interesting. This is part from part of the uh, the Faded Out podcast. Noreen is described by one of Johnny's friends growing up as the kind of mom that you kind of mess with to get a rise out of. <laughs> <laughs> like, they would play pranks on the family or kind of like mm. push around Johnny more to get a reaction out of Noreen than anything else. Mm, that's interesting but I think that can shed a little bit of light on how she's treated in general by media and And, popular opinion later yeah yeah and it always seemed like she was always kind of a little protective of Johnny again like that's Mm -hmm. given everything she's been through I can see her having kind of very anxious attachments but Johnny himself is described as a pretty typical you know 70s 80s kid he had plenty of friends. He was really well-liked in the neighborhood. He loved being outside, going to amusement park, fairs, festivals, having sleepovers with friends. But his dad also described him as kind of a little adult. <laughs> that he would kind of always go out of his way to be very polite to other people, to make people feel welcome. He would spend his last dollar on a gift just to make somebody feel, like, cared for and special and... Aww. Yeah, such a sweet kid. Sweet kid, yeah. The day before he disappeared, he went to the fair with his dad and just kind of had a really good time. One of the things that kind of came out, so typically John would go on the paper routes with Johnny very mm-hmm. often. But apparently sometimes he didn't. Sometimes John, Johnny just kind of wanted to go out by himself. Now, apparently, one of the other things that he really liked to do is it seemed like the family owned some property at a local lake. 
And often on weekends, they would take one of Johnny's friends up to the lake, go water skiing, go on the boat, whatever. Um, So apparently the night before the disappearance, John said, okay, wake me up in the morning to go in your paper route. And Johnny kind of stopped him and said, no, I want to do it by myself because it'll be quicker if I just go by myself because I want to get up to Mm. the lake early so that we can go water skiing with a friend or whatever. And at the time, Johnny is 12. So I think his dad is like, okay, fine. We'll go by yourself, whatever. Yeah, we're also, I don't think we've set scene at all, but we're also in like West Des Moines, Iowa, which at the time, I don't know. But at the time, like now it's actually uh, changed quite a bit, but at the time, definitely like very kind of, idyllic like planned community type of real quiet quiet place it's a different municipality Mm -hmm. than des moines so you got des moines and then west des moines its own city so uh you're not talking like the big city pd it's definitely yeah we are talking like suburb suburb you've described things as mayberry before and it feels Mm -hmm. like west des moines is very mayberry yeah yeah back then it most definitely was these days not so much interesting turn it's taken interesting yeah, lots of crime Interesting. there. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, because it seemed like the the Goshes were pretty, I don't know, like, not rich, but they were pretty well off. Like, they were definitely comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you look at, like, um, the streets that Johnny was delivering his papers on, like, just certainly would not be, especially then, any kind of route where a parent, an average parent would be, like worried or anxious about it you know and johnny too was i think he was like five six or five seven so he was pretty tall yeah for a yeah he was about he's described variously as five seven or five eight about 140 mm-hmm. pounds he is fully adult sized yeah he's a yeah. sizable kid so you know i could see like if you saw him from a distance you might think he was more mm-hmm. like 16 most definitely yeah so i could just see a, any parent being and this is one of those ones where like I'm sure John Gosh Sr. spent a lot of time like, gosh, if only I'd gone oh that God. day. I'm sure he's gone but... over that a million times in his head. Yeah, but you just can't blame yeah. him for not I mean, going. We'll circle back around because Noreen does. Um, That's true. But yeah, see, here's the thing is that having a paper route in this area was also so common. It seemed like every yeah. boy between 11 and 14 had a paper route. Mm-hmm. It was just the thing that you did. Johnny asked if he could get a paper route so that he could earn money to get a motorbike so that he could kind of spend more time outside yeah. and do kind of more of these adventures. And the neighborhood was so close knit. It was a very, very family oriented neighborhood. So none of this was weird at all or out of the ordinary. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there were a lot of boys just on his block that also had paper routes that delivered to various areas. And it happened that Johnny's paper route was actually just those very, very close houses. Now we're going to get into that particular morning. When Johnny Gosh, every day when he goes on his paper route, he takes his little red wagon, his yellow paper bag, now he would kind of shove the papers in, And very often he would take their little wiener dog, Gretchen. Now, apparently Gretchen, for whatever reason, loved writing in the newspaper bag. (laughs) Like she would just (laughs) kind of like sit there and like pop her little head out. And I'm like, if I had a wiener dog that would do that, I would take it everywhere with me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like without a doubt. So 
We're going to jump on to the morning of September 5th, 1982. 12-year-old Johnny Gosh gets up, crack of dawn, leaves his home at 5.45 a.m. to go pick up the papers for the West Des Moines Register that he delivered every single day. Apparently, the Sunday paper route was a little bit bigger. The papers were bigger. So here, what I'm going to describe now is what is widely believed happened that day. Johnny left at 545 with Gretchen, his red wagon, and his newspaper bag. Now, because he lived in a cul-de-sac, he would kind of cut through some yards to go directly to the pickup point, which was at 42nd and Ashworth, where he would meet along with several other children who would go to the same place, pick up their papers, carry them off with their dads on their bikes, whatever, to go to their own personal routes. While walking to the pickup point, someone saw a blue two-tone Ford Fairmont drive past Johnny, back up, stop, and ask Johnny for directions to 86th Street. Now, another paper boy, his name was Mike Siskis. This was seen by multiple paper boys that were eyewitnesses. Another paper boy named Mike mm. Siskis witnessed this exchange. Mike was a little bit older. He was about 15. Um, he was in high school. He, this is mostly based on his specific testimony, but it's also a little bit of an amalgam of other kids, too. So Johnny mm, continued to okay. the pickup point, where apparently that same two-tone Ford Fairmont circled around the block and pulled over again. This time, two other paper boys said that they saw the car once again go to Johnny and ask for directions. Now, Johnny seemed a little weirded out by this and called over an adult who, was, who had been handing out the papers out of a van to come talk to this man that was asking for directions. The man in the car then reportedly flashed his dome light three times and drove off. Some would p reports would say that Johnny then turned to Mike Siskis and say that he was scared and that he was going home. Some reports, not all reports. Mm -hmm. Most other reports would say that Johnny just grabbed his papers and started heading out on his route, which is going to make way more sense in a minute. Yeah. Johnny grabbed his papers and headed up to the corner of 42nd and Marquardt, which was just a few blocks away. Apparently, during this time, someone saw a man walk out from the bushes between two houses and start walking toward Johnny. Some say that it was the same man that was in the car. Others aren't sure if it was a different man. Some people even say that was just Johnny walking out between the trees. Mm, I know I'm mm -hmm. saying a lot of roads here. We'll put the map up on the social medias. But but for what <laughs> it's worth, yes. the... The radius we're talking about here is no more than three, four blocks. Yeah, yeah. It's very tight, and there's a shocking number of people out. Just in terms of eyewitnesses of people who claim they saw Johnny, there's at least six, seven people that saw him that day. Yeah, because there's also not just the other paper mm -hmm. boys, but there are a couple of neighbors who can say, like, they saw this snippet or that snippet. of Which becomes kind of complicated when everybody's seeing snippets. And nobody sees an entire series mm -hmm. of events. So, for example, right, John right. Rossi, a neighborhood man, claims that he saw the man in the car 
and apparently tried to give him directions to 86, and the man drove off. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a neighbor happened to look at his window and see Johnny coming up the road. Didn't think much about it. it kind of, yeah, Johnny's on his Sunday paper route. He also saw claims to have seen a two-tone Ford Fairmont driving up. He turns away from the window Mm. for a moment, but then hears a car door slam and speed off. He whips back around, and Johnny was gone. The only thing left behind is a stack of newspapers. Untouched, no trace of anything that had happened. Now, again, Mm. this guy at the time that sees this in the window doesn't report anything um, at that particular moment. I think there's a million reasons. Okay, maybe there was an accident. Maybe Johnny jumped out of the way. Maybe Johnny went back up home. Maybe the dog jumped out of the bag. Yeah. Whatever. Right. Could be now, anything. Now, all of this is going on. Meanwhile, all of these other kids, all of these other adults are just kind of going about their own business. Not very far from him at all. All within just a few blocks, if not within shouting distance. It wasn't until about 6.45 that somebody notices their Sunday paper hasn't been delivered. And they call directly to Mm -hmm. the Gosh House. Because they know who brings their paper, yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at the map a little bit, and it's just like, it really is all so tight that I have to zoom in like crazy close to to even like see all of it you know like it's just so there's no zooming out here it's so uh, tight like a google maps map or are you looking at the one that's been published i'm trying to look at a google maps map i i see i think some of these streets no longer exist because it looks like it's been rehabbed into like apartments and stuff all right this is an annotated map (laughs) oh wow look at that so over here is the cul-de-sac where johnny lived Mm-hmm. And he reportedly cut through the church this way. And then... Gotcha. I think okay. that this is 40... Which we're going to get mm-hmm. to because somebody claims later that Johnny didn't pick up his papers here. He picked them up right here. He was never over here. Really? Yeah. Okay. That I don't know about. That's interesting. Back to the notes. So... Yeah. The neighbor that is waiting for his paper calls the gosh house and says, hey, I haven't gotten my Sunday paper. Where's Johnny? Johnny's father, John Sr., walks down to the drop-off point, really apparently just kind of assuming, like, Johnny overslept, whatever. So he checks Johnny's room. He's not there. He's like, is he just, like, did he get distracted? Did he go off with friends? What's going on? Maybe he got hurt. Who knows? But he gets Mm. to, he sees Johnny's red wagon still full of papers. Now, one thing to know is that apparently none of the papers had been delivered, not a single one. And I think that that is an at least relevant Mm. fact. All of the papers were still in their kind of like brown paper binding. They hadn't even been, like, rolled or yeah. anything like that from everything that I've seen. So mm. John goes down there. He sees the the red wagon full of papers. And stories will kind of differ on this. Some say that John started kind of just, like, grumbling and cursing. 
um, and getting frustrated. Some say that John mm-hmm. just started delivering the papers right away. Some say that John went home and told Noreen to call the cops. The one that seems mm. to make sense is that John Gosh went home, told Noreen that Johnny was gone. He's going to go deliver the papers and to keep an eye out for Johnny. Apparently, delivering okay. the papers didn't take very long. There was about, I think he said, like 40 to 50 papers in each kid's route. So it doesn't take long for an adult to do. No, definitely not, especially if you're in a car. When Johnny still wasn't there... By the time that John got back, they decided to call the police. <sighs> what? What are your feelings? feelings? I just think it's it's really disconcerting where the laws were in those days that uh, how long it's going to take the police to, to show up and just how different yes. that is from, from now. How in most cases, how different is. it is from now. Now, one thing that is yeah. interesting is that Gretchen, the dog, did manage to make it home. So, on her own, yes. On her own? Gretchen ran home all on her own. No scars, no blood, nothing. Gretchen was safe at home. So, John and Noreen decided to call the police. And, like you said, they took their sweet time getting out there. So, it's about another 45 minutes. So, if we think we're going to kind of add up our timeline now. The neighbor calls the Goshes at 6.45. John goes to check on Johnny, delivers the paper. Probably about 7.30, he gets back to the house and they call the cops. So it's between 8 and 8.30 Mm -hmm. before the police actually arrive. And now they apparently didn't take the disappearance very seriously. They claimed that, oh, this is likely a runaway, and we can't take the report. We can't take a missing person's report for 72 hours. Which was correct at that time. Feelings. Feelings. It was the the policy policy in law. Yeah, it it was. So stupid. It is. And it's just so upsetting. Because we all know how crucial the first first 24 hours is. with Those missing first, persons like, cases, especially hours. kids. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Every every second that you can get mm-hmm. is crucial, and I have to think that if they if they were able to, if they had the policy in place to report him missing immediately, I think there's a much better chance to that send out an alert Johnny to do would have been found. literally anything. Like there were literally so many anything. people. Yeah. Around at this time that if somebody was on it very, very quickly, we would at least have more factual evidence Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of a timeline. Yeah. Now, everyone said so the police are insisting that Johnny is a runaway. Literally, everyone is like, no, that's the dumbest idea we've ever heard. Like I said, Johnny is incredible incredibly responsible his dad said that he was like a little adult he had no reason like he seemed to have great Mm -hmm. relationships with his parents he had great friends around the neighborhood there was he's never done it before and and there was no kind of problem child stuff going on here um 
I mean, again, yeah. even if the police think it's a runaway, they should still be investigating it. I don't fucking care. Yeah. A runaway is still a missing kid. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Ugh, 80s. Nevertheless, police didn't care. The reports were that they didn't start an immediate search at all. Again, it's 1982. There's no protocols on how to handle missing child cases. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of spoilers. It's because of this case that the FBI now has a playbook to do this. So, sad fact, but that's what had to happen for the FBI and the police to get a playbook and get their asses together. Yeah. Not like this had never happened before, but... Ugh, I mean, this is where I've got a lot to say (laughs) that we'll get to later. Now, of course, the police didn't get involved, but John, Noreen, and everybody in the neighborhood started searching for Johnny. Mm -hmm. Where are possible nooks and crannies in the neighborhood that he could have gone... He was not the type of kid to ever disappear or ever lapse on his responsibilities. He actually had a bunch of awards through the Des Moines Register for, like, attendance and timely delivering and was definitely, like, a gold star West Des Moines or Des Moines Register delivery boy. That's awesome. Police would go on to interview eventually everybody from the community. So they interviewed Mike Siskis, they interviewed John Rossi, they interviewed all the other paper boys that reportedly saw Johnny, um, everybody that kind of they could think of in the community. Of course, various eyewitnesses, mostly the other paper boys, would say various things because eyewitness testimony is trash, mm-hmm. right? Two neighbors yeah. said that they saw Johnny slumped over his wagon. Another boy said that he saw somebody force Johnny into a car. Another said that they saw something wrapped in a blanket being transferred between two cars. And the struggle is, now here we are nearly 40 years later, and all of these stories have been twisted and reinterpreted and details lost to time and reformed in our memories. And I think all of these kids really tried to give all the information that they had. With all of this information, especially a lot of it from John Rossi, that neighbor who claimed that he gave the the man in the Ford Fairmont directions, mm-hmm. they came up with a composite drawing of the man in the car who would eventually be called Emilio. And I have no idea where that name came from. Literally no idea. Oh, I do. Oh, really? Where did that name I come do. from? Are you going to talk about Paul Benassi? Oh, of course I am. He provides that name. But it seemed like the name was there before Paul Benassi got involved. Mm-hmm. No? Okay. So there you go. We're going to, spoilers, there's somebody named Paul Benassi. Who, <laughs> Paul Benassi is coming in. Paul yeah. Benassi is going to come in here in like seven years. And then retroactively they start calling the sketch Emilio, but that, he wasn't called that. Okay. Beforehand. See, this is the yeah. thing that I have with this. There's no good timeline. Everything. Exactly. Exactly. I just keep thinking, too, like, I understand that, like, you know, it's a close-knit community and, like, people know each other and all that. But I also have to think, like, obviously there's no way that every single one of those things that you cited happened that morning because, like, that would be a bonkers day in West Des Moines. And everybody would then know. Like, that many out-of-the-ordinary things happening, people would have taken notice of. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think, like... Even just, like, visually, the ones that are, like, not extraordinary, like Johnny coming out of the bushes or Johnny coming from this way or Johnny coming from that way, when there's that many paper boys out, mm-hmm. I could see in, like, the dusk of early morning, 
confusing a couple of kids that might look similar to each other and like and that too like you have to consider that when you're thinking about these timelines and I think that that is kind of what happened in a lot of these situations is you know 5 6 a.m a bunch of 12 year old boys kind of look the same yeah you know and I know that you know John was tall for his age but there were also older you know, paper boys, there were their parents mm. going around. There were other people leaving for work and coming and going and all of that. So when they would interview a couple of the like local paper boys and kind of now adults on the Faded Out podcast, one of the things that one of them would kind of comment on is that when he spoke to the police, when the police finally did come to talk to him several weeks later, that they would ask, was there anything out of the ordinary that day? Mm. And that was really the only thing that he would ask. And so he would just say no. And then the police just kind of left at that. And so to say, was there anything out of the ordinary that you saw that day? Seeing a car driving around the corner isn't out of the ordinary. Seeing, you know, a different guy walking down the street isn't necessarily out of the ordinary. Like, it seems Mm -mm. like... There was so much wrong with how this investigation ran and yeah, not to feed into the conspiracy theories because I think that it was just, just typical bad police work. I don't think they were intentionally doing a bad job. I think that they just did a bad job. No, it's, it's very of its time. Yeah. Like, this is just what, this is what their policies told them to do in a town where I'm sure they were not doing this type of work all that often, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, the the question that you would intuitively ask now is, like, what cars did you see that morning? Yeah, yeah. Can you describe everyone you saw that morning? Mm-hmm. That type of stuff. But with no protocol, like, you know, and I'm sure these, these guys had no experience, like, dealing with this type of thing. I think the thing that's more striking to me is not so much the the not-so-great investigation, but the like very flippant nature of the I don't know if he was the sheriff or like Mm -hmm. the lead cop in town or whatever like his really flippant attitude was more disturbing to me than the lack of investigation because at least like a lack of good investigation like if they're trying and doing a bad job that's one thing Mm -hmm. but this guy was like he was so flippant Mm -hmm hearing him talk it's like are you serious right now am I really hearing this right now yeah some of the comments that he makes are very they're incredibly insensitive and incredibly Mm. just they're very ignorant yeah like something that you would never say to and I can't remember that investigator's name because I was just so angry at hearing him talk (laughs) but the nameless man nameless male there's a lot of those in my life right now and I hate them Yeah, you have a lot of anger today. We should get back on track here. Anyway, but no, I think that, yes, it's, there is, there's bad investigative work and then there's rude and cruel investigative work. And one turns into the other very quickly. Yes. Because one of the things that people would say, so John and Noreen do not let this go. They put so Mm. much pressure on the police department Um, and I think that's part of the lead investigator's response was he was angry about it he didn't like being treated like this Mm -hmm. and unconsciously just started being very cruel about it 
mm-hmm. um, and be- very resentful. Yeah, he took it personally exactly. and then blew it off. Um, he said that John and Noreen were too involved and they need to back off. Their being so critical of the police is not helping the situation. But John mm. and Noreen have every, had every right to be critical of the police. Many, many people yeah, yeah, would go did. on to say that it felt like they didn't want to solve this case. It felt like the police didn't want to solve this case. Mm. Yeah, and that's just a sad, that's a sad way to feel. Because it just is like, who's protecting, who's protecting exactly. us? Who's protecting our kids? So John and Noreen stay involved, not only at the local level for their own child, but they become massive national level advocates for missing children. And this is really yeah. cool. Like, I love... I love when something tragic, it will always be tragic, but when you can kind of turn that into a mission, they start setting Mm -hmm. up meetings with different organizations. They start meeting with other police and investigative authorities. They start involving themselves in political advocacy. They create the national, they help create along with um, John Walsh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They start to advocate for changing laws and everything to end that 72-hour rule. Yeah. And they, they work with other parents who have had their children go missing. And I think that the work that they did was awesome. Like, it became a full-time job for them. Absolutely. And, I mean, NECMEC is, like... <laughs> Amazing. It's it everything. Is. Yeah, it's, it's literally everything. And they are why mm-hmm. that exists. Like, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And that's why, like, people can say what they want about Noreen, but if she wasn't so dogged about this, that oh, yeah. wouldn't have happened. Oh, yeah. Like, she took that grief and she really, really channeled it into something so productive. And she took every opportunity to to bring attention to this case. But, so they did great work. And I think, like, nationally, we can't take away from any of the amazing work that they did. The problem was that that really did start some struggling and some bad vibes between the Goshes and the police. And mm-hmm. it was just a bad jumping off point. And honestly, again, if you told me you wouldn't investigate my missing child, let alone if you told me that you wouldn't find my missing dog for three days, I'd be pissed. Like, let alone my child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine. So in response to this, the Goshes hired various private investigators pretty early on, like within the first few months. And Mm -hmm. according to John, they were told kind of from the get-go, you need to keep Johnny's name out there. You need to keep media attention on him. Do not let this case go cold. It's on you to stop to not let this case go cold. And Mm. generally, that's very good advice. (laughs) Yeah. Keep his name out there keep his face out there it brings attention to who he is and it keeps pressure on the police yeah absolutely but here's where i'm also going to inject a bit of my opinion Mm. private investigators can be great yes but they are all also paid for their time and The longer you keep them around, the more they, money they make. And they mm. work on reputation just like the rest of us. And I don't know. Eventually, the private investigators, I really, really do think, take advantage of this family. 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like they are, you know, they are hired, so you can't, you know, you can't say that there's nothing in exactly. it for them. Exactly. At the end of the day. Like, they can have, and sometimes they really break cases wide open. Like, we had that with Kelly Cochran, if it hadn't have been for the private detectives that, um, um, that they were working with. Like, that case would probably not have been solved as quickly oh, as yeah. it Private was, investigators you know. can do amazing but, work. But they're still a hired entity, and that means they have a different relationship with the case than, you know, civic, civil servants. And I also don't know. That's all. Is there, like, an ethics code for private investigators and a governing body and somebody who they answer to? I do not believe so. I don't believe so either. That'd be cool if there was, though. It'd be cool if there was. If there is, tell me and call my ass out and say I'm a big liar and I'm being mean (laughs) in this case. But here's the thing, like, there's so much involvement of private investigators here, and each one develops their own special little theory, Mm -hmm. kind of out there theory, and there's so little actual evidence ever gained by a private investigator. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really hard to point to hard evidence that a private investigator ever actually found. Yeah. Other than they have a theory. Right. So... That's when kind of rumors also start to develop. Mm-hmm. Satanic cults and global pedophile rings and all of that are thrown out shockingly quickly. Yeah. I think the first mention of satanic cults is within the first six months of this case. Wow. Well, it was the early 80s. It was so. the early 80s. So that's why it kind of doesn't shock me and why I don't feel the need to go too much into it. But Mm-mm. Noreen says in a newspaper interview at some point that she starts begging people to bring attention to these cults that took her son and oh, wow. uh, that we need to pay more attention to them because they're preying on our children. And it, it gets really extreme really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Despite any evidence. Yeah. And sadly, there's not many more leads over the next couple mm-hmm. of years. Mm-hmm. So Johnny disappears in 1982. No real evidence comes forward until 1984, when another newspaper boy for the West De- or for the Des Moines Register goes missing. Yeah, Eugene Martin was a 14-year-old boy from Des Moines, the city proper, also a paper boy for the Des Moines Register. He was also last seen talking to somebody in a car while going to pick up his package of newspapers for delivery that morning. Yeah. It is very hard to not see how these two cases are connected. Yeah. But officially, they still never have been by the police. (sighs) Are you frozen or just staring me down? I'm just staring staring you down down because I'm so mad. Hold on. I'm going to let Murder Beagle in. Okay. Mm. It's really hard to not connect them. They're similar yeah. ages. They look similar. A similar situation that they'd appear, they disappeared from, both delivering for the Des Moines Register. And a similar complete lack of evidence. A similar complete lack of evidence. I will say the detectives on this case worked their asses off mm-hmm. to try to find some kind of hard evidence. Yeah. The lead detective on this case, I will give a shout out to James Rowley, went as far as Mexico to follow up on leads in this case. Wow, good for him. But there just simply nothing showed up. Yeah. Now, the Martin family 
they were kind of a little less Mayberry than the Goshes. Mm-hmm. They kind of had their strife and their struggles and things like that. And I think that that's, that's part of the reason why this hasn't gotten the play that mm-hmm. Goshes did, but also because they simply didn't have the resources to become professional advocates the way that the Goshes yeah. did. Yeah, totally. It takes a lot of money to travel every weekend and to make contact with fucking mm-hmm. politicians to get a bill passed, and that's that's yeah. money. Yeah, totally. And it's uh, it's a full time job. It is. Um, and h- hiring private investigators is mm-hmm. expensive. The Goshes, I will say, did reach out to this family, and they shared a lot of the information that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, they shared what they got from their private investigators because they thought that the cases were linked. But the Eugene Martin case is still open to this day as well. Yeah. I will say, though, that both of the Martin parents have passed, have since passed away. So mm. that's really sad. That's sad. I know. Yeah. Now, the next year, in 1985, a dollar bill surfaces. Oh, yeah. With a handwritten note that says, I'm alive, Johnny Gosh. Yeah. Apparently, handwriting experts analyzed this and said, oh, that's definitely Johnny Gosh's handwriting. Mm. I don't know. It looks pretty yeah. generic to me. Uh, I don't know if it looks generic to me, actually. Really? Well, I spend a lot of my time looking at teenager handwriting. <laughs> and... Yeah, there's definitely always, like, commonalities or similarities, but I think the signature that he used mm-hmm. was pretty distinct. Not the all-caps part where oh, he says yeah. he's still alive, but the signature, I think, looks distinct. Yeah, but I think that it's it's important to remember that this case was so much in the news, mm-hmm. and that's not the first time a dollar bill like that surfaced in this case or in other cases. Yeah. So, well, I think it's it, it would be a great lead to go on, but where do you go with it? Right, yeah. And this is just one of several notes on bills, on restaurant walls, on basement walls that would have said similar things over the years, like literally all mm-hmm. over the country. Yeah. Like these yeah. things started popping up everywhere. It became yeah. like a meme, and I think that that is hurtful. Oh, yeah, it totally is, yeah. The next year, in 1986, a third Des Moines boy goes missing, Mark Allen. Mm. Now, sometimes Mark Allen's disappearance is included in this case, but it seems like there's less information and less of a connection. He was not a paper boy. He went missing while walking from a friend's home. He apparently kind of told his mom, hey, I'm going to go over here, save me some pizza, and he never Mm. returned. Okay. And he had a history of kind of strained family relationships. It seems like there's more evidence in his case that it was a familial kind of thing. Mm, okay. Um, again, that case is still unsolved too, though. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know about this one. Uh-oh. So There's not much information out there about Mark Allen's disappearance. Yeah. So sometimes it's thrown in there, not always as much. Mm, that's so sad. <sighs> now, one of the things I'm going to jump um if you listen to the faded out podcast they were able to get a hold of a couple of the boys from like the neighborhood Mm -hmm. literally from the house in front of where johnny went missing from mark horton 42nd 
And some of the fellow paper fellow paper boys, some of Johnny's actual friends uh, and friends of the Goshes. Now, again, some of them would say that they felt that this case, nobody ever wanted to solve this case. And some of them would go on to say that we tried to share information, but nobody took it. Like mm. a lot of these families would say, we called the police to report this connection. We called the police to report we saw this. And the police mm. would just say, okay, and then hang up. Yeah. So what they would say wasn't really kind of taken in with a lot of the evidence. It was kind of limited and it wouldn't really go anywhere. I don't know. This case, the investigation of this case goes so astray and it's about to go real, real far astray. Mm, yeah. So we're going to get into some theories. And I think you know these ones quite a bit. I, I, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm getting okay. more comfortable yes. sitting on get the floor. Com- <laughs> so I'm, I'm not exactly comfortable. Get comfortable but. as we jump into uh, 1989 when the disappearance of Johnny Gosh just becomes a giant game of telephone. Yeah. In 1989, an inmate from Nebraska named Paul Benassi comes forward claiming he was involved in the abduction of Johnny Gosh. So this is seven years mm-hmm. after the disappearance. Paul Benassi was serving time in prison for allegations related to child abuse. He mm-hmm. came forward and claimed that he was involved in the kidnapping of Johnny and that Johnny was kidnapped to support a politically driven pedophile ring. Right. Now, we don't have enough time to cover everything that Paul Benassi was involved in, but... Basically, his involvement was in something called the Franklin Scandal. Now, basically, Mm -hmm. the Franklin Scandal involved a banker, businessman, and Republican Party activist named Lawrence King. Lawrence King was accused of child sexual abuse. He, Paul Benassi, accused him of victimizing Paul and other young boys from a very young age. And that there were other politicians involved in this child sex abuse ring. And this goes into a broader abuse ring related to the Kansas Boys Town camp that Mm -hmm. we need to cover. But there is simply no time here to cover it. Let's say it is. Yeah. It was big. It was very real. And it very, very much grew into a lot of people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. What Paul Benassi went through, nobody questions what Paul Benassi went through. Mm-hmm. No. He would go on to win a lawsuit against Lawrence King kind of by default because mm. he accused King of various sexual abuse charges and other things. And King did not show up to the court date effectively Mm. rendering the judgment in favor of Paul Benassi. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence King has never respond, never did respond to any of this, like very simply clammed up. Yeah, yeah. You will read that Benassi won a sizable amount of money from this. None Mm. of it was ever paid out. So I think he won a judgment of like $1.5 million, but he never got paid a penny of it. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So, again, the Franklin scandal, 
the Boys Town incident. Those were very real. Yeah. And there are really great books about both that you can find on Amazon that are really Mm -hmm. good reading and worth looking into if you have curiosity about kind of the bigger web of it. And again, I think that we should cover it, but I I don't have the stomach for it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's It's a, a it's a doozy. That's for sure. Basically, what Paul Benassi's story was that he was victimized by King and these other men and that he was used to then lure other boys and kind of to groom and train other boys. Mm -hmm. So kind of his role at that point as Benassi got older was to be a gopher for these men and was engaged in these child kidnappings. Mm -hmm. So Benassi came forward in 1989 and said that he was in the car that kidnapped Johnny, and he is the one that grabbed Johnny off the street. Mm-hmm. Banasi would go on to meet with both John and Noreen, and apparently convinced both of them of his story, although we'll talk a bit about John's thoughts on this situation now. I'm going to put that on the back burner. Yeah. Because Banasi's story really, really won over Noreen. She took it hook, line, and sinker and said, this is what happened to my boy. This is what's going on. Mm -hmm. Benassi took him off the street. Yeah. He dragged him into this pedophile ring. And that's where Johnny is to this day. Mm -hmm. Benassi got a lot of attention for this. Like, interview after interview with some of the biggest media agencies. He was taken out of prison to show camera crews the locations where the boys were taken. He reportedly was able to identify one of the houses in Colorado um, to unveil one of the crawl spaces where the boys were hidden, pointing out initials carved into the walls of the crawl space. All of that. Yeah. And those, I mean, those stories, if you watch that news footage, it's fascinating. Um, And pretty uncanny i mean it's kind of that's the thing with like you can't doubt what paul Benassi mm-hmm. went through we know what he went through like that's the verifiable that part is very very verifiable um, and i think that that's that's yeah. that's hard yeah so it's hard to know like at that point like what you know where do you start and stop believing mm-hmm. paul Benassi? because paul Benassi would you go know? on to make some very very Extreme claims. Mm-hmm. Now, authorities did not at the time and still to this day do not believe that he is a credible witness. Yeah. They say that he had too much to gain from this. And, I mean, again, this is like a double-edged sword. He did not ask for any time off of his sentence. He did not ask for any money for this. But what he did get was a lot of attention, a lot of accolades. He got to change his narrative Mm. to be very much a hero. And he did get time out of prison to go to these locations. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now, the other thing is that Banasi was diagnosed at the time with multiple personality disorder, what we now call dissociative identity disorder. Mm -hmm. And according to authorities, he could not give reliable information and they refused to follow the leads that he gave. Now, according to the Goshes, he was able to accurately identify Johnny. He was able to say 
oh, he had this birthmark and he had this stutter and he did this in this way. And to Noreen, that's like, yep, that's my boy. You know who he is. You know what happened to him. That's all I need to know. Yeah. And that's really, it's so compelling. I think if you're Noreen, it's, it's incredibly compelling. It's important to note that the... So there's a birthmark on his chest that was released yes. to the media. And so that was like mm-hmm. very much like public knowledge. Um, there's a scar on his tongue that Banasi talked about that was not released to media, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And that I think is pretty compelling because that feels like a an odd place for a scar mm-hmm. or at least a visible one. Um, but I think what is really bittersweet to me is like it seems like the – the anxious stammer is what kind of convinced Noreen that that was Johnny without a doubt. But do you know anyone that doesn't stammer when they're nervous? Here's the thing. When they go back and re-interview other friends and family and people that knew him, they would say, Johnny didn't do that. He didn't have a stammer. He didn't. Yeah. That's interesting too. Yeah. He also, one of the things that kind of, that John goes back and say when they re-interview him many years later. So at the time that this interview was all done, John Gosh kind of goes along with everything. Noreen is really, really driving the ship at this point. Noreen is driving the ship. The private investigators are pointing her where to go. Mm. And John very much feels like he's being dragged along. Yeah. He says he kind of went with the story because it was what the private investigators were telling him to go along with. Mm. But his personal thoughts, he asked Benassi, tell me about him, about how tall was John. Mm. And Benassi says, well, he came about up to my chest. And Paul Benassi is about 5'6". That's interesting. Yeah, so that's not exactly possible. That's not possible. Yeah. And the other thing that John would come to find out was he was told Benassi's cell in prison is wallpapered with Johnny Gosh stories. Wow. Every inch, every story that's been put out on him, it is on his wall. Mm. He has studied this case. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, here's the thing. You can take that either way. You can say, oh, he studied this case. He's trying to get attention, Mm -hmm. whatever. Or studied it because he was involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that, like, you know, um, you'll always hear when you look at stuff. Not that I like taking a lot of this type of media, but um, like when you learn how to lie, you make sure that your lie mm-hmm. always has mostly truth in it, right? Yeah, and that's, you only lie ten percent. Yeah, and that's why it's so hard to know what to do with Paul Benassi because, again, like. You know what he went through. And we also know about abuse cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you can't dismiss that either. But mm-hmm. it's also, it's so, it's very much so the sensational version of what happened, too. And that inherently makes it hard to believe. Yeah. But it's not the hardest to believe thing even in this story. As we'll find out. <laughs> as we will come to find out. So Noreen was sold on this story. Mm -hmm. I think this just clicked everything in Noreen's mind. And she followed it 110,000%. 
She says she's still very much in support by all accounts. Mm -hmm. This is her story. So we're going to jump from 1989 into 1997. Yeah, big time jump. Big time jump. Big event jump. Johnny visits Noreen in the middle of the night. Yeah. This comes out much later. While testifying under oath regarding bill related to organized crime. So this had to do with Noreen's public advocacy. Mm -hmm. She went forward and was advocating for all of these new bills in Congress. This one had to do with organized crime because of organized pedophile rings and all of that. Mm -hmm. So she's testifying under oath and she's asked if she had ever seen Johnny since the night that he went missing or since the morning that he went missing. Mm. To everybody's shock, she says, yes. Mm. Noreen claims that she had been visited in her home late one night by Johnny and another man. Now, this is 15 years after he went missing, so he would have been 27. Yeah. And it's important to note also that by this time, John and Noreen had been divorced. Mm Mm-hmm. Johnny apparently knocks on her door one night with another man who he claims is a friend. And this this sounds very, I don't know, dreamlike, movie-like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But that she is compelled to let these two men in after he says that he's Johnny. Mm. Now, she apparently asked him a few questions. To prove that it was him and whatever it was that he said, she believed him and welcomed him and his friend in. Yeah. Apparently the other man didn't speak while he was there, but that Johnny would kind of look over at him to get his approval before speaking. Mm -hmm. Johnny told Noreen reportedly that he had been kidnapped by a group of high-powered men in a pedophile ring and that he had been sold and used for sex. Mm-hmm. That Johnny told her that he and a small group of boys from this pedophile ring had managed to escape and were now living undercover on a Native American reservation. Mm. They all dyed their hair black so that they could be in disguise. And that she could never tell anyone because the people that held them had too much power and that the boys would never be safe if she said anything. Mm. And... Noreen would never speak about this until this testimony. Yeah. She said that that happened in 1997 Mm -hmm. and never spoke of it until this testimony. Yeah. People would kind of ask her, like, why did you never tell anybody? Why did you never say anything? And she, her reasoning was pretty simple. She just said, Johnny told me not to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so compelling to me about that is just that the fact that she believed it so hard that she wouldn't say anything about it until she was literally under oath. And that tells us how seriously she took it in that capacity. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I, I believe she believes it happened. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I believe that she believes that it happened. And I think that the the fact that it's under oath, I don't know about like what her 
like religious background is or or you know kind of what what her like belief set is but I I can certainly think of people that I know that under a, the oath of like swearing on a bible that they would admit mm-hmm. to some pretty rough stuff because that's how seriously they take that particular oath making gesture I guess yeah. I can, I guess my question is she's saying that it is these very high powered political men mm-hmm. that took her son and she's more comfortable saying it in front of a room of them mm, yeah well I don't know where else is she gonna go though the police haven't exactly been super helpful to her the FBI hasn't been super helpful to her her dozens of private investigators yeah I don't know I just like you said you're a Noreen stan I don't yeah I mean it's it's not like I think that she's perfect obviously Mm -hmm. but I do think and I don't know that I believe what happened what she says happened on the night of in that (laughs) night in March in 97 Mm -hmm. but I I think that some people do live and think in that fashion that makes me like I don't believe that any part of Noreen is disingenuous I think she has I don't believe it's disingenuous yeah I think she's definitely been shaped by a lot of trauma and a lot of Mm -hmm. tragedy Mm -hmm. but I also like I don't know that anything that she has said or done wouldn't be possible for most people in the kind of pressure cooker that she was in I can back Noreen until she starts changing her story and starts attacking people yeah yeah and that's totally fair because now I'm going to make it more confusing mm-hmm. in case it wasn't before. That shortly after this claim sh- that Johnny is living under an assumed identity on a Native American reservation, all of this, Noreen claims that John Sr. is involved and that Johnny's body is buried in the basement of their old house. Oof. Yeah. That's that's where I have a hard time with my girl Noreen. Yeah. Now, again, the two had been divorced at this time. They were no longer living in the house. Mm-hmm. There seemed to be some animosity related to the divorce. Mm-hmm. And she starts to accuse John and attack John and saying he was involved and that was why he didn't take him on the paper route that day. She says that, you know, they had been getting weird, like, prank phone calls, you know, Mm -hmm. hang-up phone calls, and that the night before the disappearance, John had gotten one of those phone calls, but he stayed on it and kind of made comments like, yes, I'll be there, he'll be there, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. and starts to go in that John was fully involved in the disappearance. Yeah. Yeah. Again... No evidence to support any of this. No, and I think that would have been... That's the easiest story in my mind to dismiss. Like, that's easier to dismiss in some ways than the midnight visit. Because Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no way that the house wouldn't have been looked at pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. you know? And now the house does get investigated and searched and nothing is found. But to this day, there are people on the internet that insist that it was John all along. Yeah. And that John sold his son into a pedophile ring. Yeah. 
And I, I don't definitely do not. I have an easier time believing Paul Benassi than I do that theory. I do too. Yeah. I do too. Mm-hmm. In 2000, Noreen writes why Johnny can't come home. Mm. Now, it is largely believed that this was more co-written mm-hmm. than written and reveals a number of theories about a global pedophile ring. In fact, it starts off introducing the king of all conspiracies, my favorite, your favorite, MK Ultra. Yes, everybody's favorite. Everybody's favorite. I've been reading about MK Ultra since I was literally able to read. <laughs> you weirdo. Am a fucking weirdo. Yeah. Blame my father. I, I do. Always <laughs> do. But the introduction introduces a theory that Johnny was kidnapped to be sold into MK Ultra because he had preferred traits and something something. The introduction is also incredibly just like fawning over Noreen. Um, the introduction is written by mm-hmm. one of her private investigators and just fawns all over her that she's a super mom and mm-hmm. all of this. And okay, it's her book and you're writing the introduction for her book and that's great. But it also kind of like, oh, this is why you kept this specific private investigator around. And it's it's a little gross to read, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Again, that intertwined with okay, there is a political pedophile ring in MK Ultra, and this circles all the way up to the Pope. And 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 here's the thing, here's the other part about that. I am so skeptical of this. But I also have to put out there does the Catholic Church involve itself in sexual abuse rings? Yes. Uh, mm. did a state representative just start, did we just open an ethics investigation into Matt Gates? Yes, for mm-hmm. sex trafficking? Yes, yes, we did. Yeah, that's what's so hard about these things for me is like, I mean, it's like when you think about Pizzagate and these, these types of things that, like, they become these bizarre conspiracy theories that I think in some ways, like, delegitimize actual goings on that's my frustration with it is like yes sex trafficking is real yes there are pedophiles in high places but when we make it into this big fanatical thing we actually do harm to the way to our understanding of how this actually happens and how it's actually working yeah which in turn makes it that much harder to actually break down Mm -hmm. And dissolve exactly and eradicate i hate to break it to all the suburban parents but sex trafficking by and freaking large does not involve random children being snatched off the street and moved through airports right not typically it involves That's a lot sure. more grooming and a lot more it's actually a lot more sinister than that to be terribly honest yeah yeah, it really is. It really is. And in so many ways, like it, it like anything else, you know, preys on people mm-hmm. on the fringe, you know, people that are already at a disadvantage. So, yeah, and that's just yeah. that's that's just my thing anyway. about like believing these stories is you're trying to take something that is very real and make it into a fantasy that's much less mm-hmm. real. 
And that makes the real thing. It you know, it just takes the spotlight off the real thing. Like who does it who does that help? Yeah. And that process scares me, is what I'm saying. That process really yeah. really scares me. Like even like, okay, you want to talk about like pedophilia in the Catholic Church. Well, those victims were groomed and those victims were scared and they weren't, you know, mm-hmm. picked up off the street. The the scary part to me yeah. is you sent those kids to church. Yeah. And that's that's mm-hmm. way harder to face, right? That this happens like in normal quote yeah. unquote normal. And, and so to me and that that makes me wonder like how much kind of cognitive dissonance is Noreen engaging in here? So mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And how much anybody would in you yeah. know, a similar circumstance. All right. Yeah. So whew, one more step down the ladder. Yeah. Now we're going to go to 2006. <laughs> Are we going to be able to do this um, all tonight? I have three more pages. I think we can. Okay. I think we can. I'm so sorry. All right. 2006, no, a fine. package of three pictures are sent to Noreen anonymously. She opens them up and finds pictures of boys shirtless and bound. She immediately reports that Johnny is in these pictures. That one of these several boys mm-hmm. in the photographs that is bound shows a large birthmark similar to Johnny's. Um, mm-hmm. This big kind of large dark mark on his chest that's in the shape of South America. Mm-hmm. Now, for what it's worth, again, Noreen's story versus John's story. John has seen these pictures and he says that's not Johnny. That looks nothing like him. Yeah. That's not what his birthmark looked like. And by the way, that's a shadow. Mm-hmm. And I have seen the photos. Yeah. And I have to agree with John. Yeah, they're hard to look at, but I I also agree. I th- I think first off, right off the bat, the boy in the photos yes, looks too young. Very much too young. Looks way younger than Johnny was, which mm-hmm. makes it even harder to look at. But what is also really like tender to me is that Johnny looked exactly like his oh, yeah. dad yeah like if you've seen pictures of john gosh or like interviews from him from the 80s and then you look at pictures of johnny like they look like mm-hmm. clones of each yeah. other so you know i mean so there's there's a distinctiveness to those mm-hmm. features yeah and i could see like if somebody that didn't know johnny looking at those pictures i could see like oh yeah the sandy blonde hair you know yeah, I can also see a mom that's desperate to see her son look at those yeah. and see her son. Seeing what you want to see is yeah. a real thing. Yeah. Now, Noreen, and then this is the part that's weird. Noreen took it upon herself to track down these images um, to a child pornography mm-hmm. website. Or I should say a child abuse website because wow. I don't like the term child pornography. Um, it's mm. photography of sexual abuse of children. Girl, preach. But yeah. She claims that this supports her theory of an abuse ring. Now, it's interesting that not long after these photos surfaced, a tip was passed along that one of the photos was actually part of a case that has already been solved in Florida Mm -hmm. um, and gave the name of the detective on the case. The detective Mm -hmm. came forward and said, yep, I investigated that case. I know exactly what is going on there. He said that he was able to identify the boys and contacted their families. He 
knew something was kind of off in the photos. He knew that what he was looking at was abuse, but all of the boys insisted mm-hmm. there was it was a game, there was no coercion. Mm. So despite the detective's work, he kind of just focused more on educating the family and protecting the family and that. Because the boys said it was like an escape captivity game. Like they were tying each other up and then like try to escape, try to escape. But again, the photos are. They're hard to look at. They're they're not graphic. I will say that. They're not. No. Yeah. They're not graphic. There's there's nothing seen, but they are just uncomfortable to see. Mm -hmm. So the detective kind of spent more time talking with the families and be like, hey, here's just what I need you to do to protect your boys, which I think is the best that you can do in that situation. Oh, definitely, yeah. Although three of the boys were identified that left one unidentified to this day. And the photo remains a controversy. Yeah. In 2014, the documentary Who Took Johnny comes out. Now, this documentary is kind of what really forms the currently held narrative including all the mm-hmm. conspiracies we've discussed. It goes into all of it. I do recommend it because I think it's a good watch. Yeah, it is. It like, is. It, it's a well-made documentary. It's a great narrative. It's also like the only one widely available about yeah. this case, which I think is really interesting for how high profile the case is, that there haven't been a lot well, of them. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. Mm. It's a really uncritical documentary, though, I'll say that. It's mm-hmm. such an uncritical look at everything. Like every yeah, yeah. bit that they chose to produce in that documentary is like, this is our narrative and we accept nothing else. Yeah, yeah. And it is also very much like from Noreen's point mm-hmm. of view. And I mean, that kind of spurred more into this investigation. I even managed to track down a Twitter account that claims to be fucking Johnny. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Sharing all these like images and conspiracy theories like the rocking X and the other shit that have to do with this pedophile ring that I just refuse to spend more time on. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. There's yeah. there is another documentary America's Missing Children but that one's mm. a really conspiracy minded. Before I go and kind of break a little bit more of this down what are your thoughts let's Let's review a little bit. (laughs) Let's review because we've gone over a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that this case is. I've always been fascinated by this case. Like it's it's older than we are. It's one of these ones that's kind of like your foundational true crime Mm -hmm. stuff. And I think that first and foremost, I will just say that I think that Noreen is a trooper. Mm -hmm. With a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. A lot of trauma. I, I, most of the time, my sense is that the simple and mundane solution is usually the one that's true. But why did nobody ever investigate a mundane solution? Exactly. And my other thought is that mundane solutions leave something typically behind. But so much time was lost mm-hmm. that there could have been you know, a bevy of evidence that disappeared Mm -hmm. in that 72 hours, you know, or that maybe the family or the searchers stumbled across and didn't know what to do with or wouldn't have noticed because they didn't have the critical eye, Mm -hmm. you know. But I do feel compelled by some of the conspiracy. I do think that Eugene Martin's case is connected like that. I don't see how they wouldn't be. I am apt to believe that it was something 
smaller scale and more hometown horror mm-hmm. than than the big kind of conspiracy theories would imply. Yeah, and that's like that's really sad because it's the mundane solution and it's not the it's not the story that's like selling all the books, but right? What, but, but what about that is more sad than a boy living his life in yeah. sex trafficking? Exactly. Like, one yeah. of the things I thought was really poignant was um, in the podcast, the interview, when they interview John, he flat out says, again, he's a straight shooter. He's like, I hope Johnny died that day rather than going yeah. through what Noreen th- insists he went through. Yeah. And I think it's more likely that he probably did. Mm-hmm. I think data tells us, I don't remember the exact statistic, but data tells us that when it's a non-familial child abduction, they're either killed pretty much that day or they're held captive for some amount of time. But there's not like an in-between, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Well, and, and we um, the cases we've seen where that does happen, I mean, we've seen it. I mean, we talked about mm-hmm. Elizabeth Smart. We've covered Sean mm-hmm. Hornbeck. We know the story yeah, of Colleen yeah. Stan. It happens. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It is more of a hometown horror situation. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know any of the hometown horror theories on this? Not really. No, I oh, don't. Good. Do you have oh, them? I do. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let me have it. So again, I'm going to put a lot of credit to the Faded Out podcast on kind of doing some of this. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I hope you'll edit me to sound smarter in that little segment because <laughs> I'm, I'm editing us both to sound smarter in this episode because I feel Good. so. Again, there was so much information that I feel like I left out the very basic details. Like, hey, we're going yeah. to Iowa, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, so this podcast, I'm I'm not going to put it on a pedestal and say that it's the greatest. I think I have similar criticisms as I do to Noreen's story where everything Mm -hmm. is very uncritical some of the interviews are very uncritical and that annoys me it's also very amateur but I think it's done well and it's it's a good ass like investigative deep dive it's also very grounded it looks at what is evidence what is hearsay what is misinformation and how did misinformation take hold Mm-hmm. That said, Noreen hates this podcast. She mm. discouraged people from listening to it. She said the host was trying to profit from her son's disappearance. It sounds like there were some kind of backline threats and accusations against the host, mm. which is not, I didn't find them to be true. I thought that the host was very transparent mm-hmm. in kind of what she was doing. She's an amateur broadcasting student, so. Anyway, I can't say what is or is misrepresented because, again, there's no facts. Right. So we're going to go into a different narrative. And I think what kind of breaks Noreen up a little bit is simply that she has dedicated her life to one narrative. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to introduce a few people um, that you may not have heard of. The first one is a pseudonym. Um, he goes by Yellow Bag. And if you actually go to the Mm. Iowa Cold Cases website, you can see a lot of his comment threads. Mm. Um, He's been talking about this case for quite a while because he was another um, paper boy for the Des Moines Register, a little bit older than Johnny at the time of the disappearance. 
and he offers kind of some insights into the neighborhood and some goings on mm. at the Des Moines Register. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, and then there's John Bird or Chris Burge, who was a neighbor of Johnny. His older brother was very good friends with Johnny, and he was at his house all the time. Even John's dad, Johnny's dad says, yeah, the Burges were really close. They had spats. They were always together. They were adolescent boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so both Chris Burge and his father said that they saw Johnny just before they disappeared, dragging his wagon across the Burges' driveway, like to the point that Chris had mm-hmm. to be like, stop, dad, you're going to hit Johnny. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Chris was also a paper boy. And he knew Johnny's route, and I think that this is interesting. So he was a little bit younger than Johnny, maybe about two years younger. He knew Johnny's route because he was very mad as a little 10-year-old boy that Johnny got to deliver the paper to their house Mm. and that he got to pick up his newspapers in front of their house while Chris Burge and his dad had to go to the pickup location. So Chris says that... Johnny never went to the regular pickup location. Like, that wasn't Mm. his pickup location, that Johnny picked up his newspapers at 42nd and Marquardt. John's dad kind of changes his feelings on this. He's like, well, I'm not sure. I don't really remember. It was so long ago. Like, it would make sense, blah, blah, blah. But Chris's kind of point in saying this is anybody who says that they saw Johnny at Ashworth didn't see him. They were probably seeing Mm -hmm. another boy. Johnny Mm -hmm. picked up at my corner. So then we're also going to talk about Ron Sampson, who is a friend of Noreen and John's um, in the 80s. He got involved in the case to support their advocacy efforts. He actually accompanied John when the two went to meet Paul Benassi. And Mm. to this day, Ron Sampson, he is still very good friends with John, but literally no one is saying anything bad about Noreen. They disagree Mm. with her theory of what happened but everybody is like noreen is a wonderful person she cares about her son but she is very tied to a narrative that doesn't seem to make sense Mm -hmm. the other person that we're going to talk about is sam soda he's a private investigator who worked briefly with the goshes he Mm. ran an organization called stolen children are reported every day pithy name scared (laughs) he was an anti-smut campaigner who did like these kind of closed door anti-child sex abuse trainings where he would show like these photographs Mm. of child abuse that apparently you could just buy at bookstores like you're a local local adult bookstore and he's like yeah like here's where I got it and here's what it looks like and He used that kind of shock approach to doing these trainings, which is kind of gross. Mm. They went really hard in on him at first. And I was like, yeah, this guy sounds fucked up. But then they do another interview where they claim he he clears his name. I think it was a pretty kind of uncritical interview, but that's just me. Yeah. And then I want to talk about Wilbur Milhouse and Frank Sikora. Important folks. So. Now, apparently, again, the details on this case were wrong from the beginning. Like we said, everybody Mm -hmm. that says they saw Johnny at Ashworth was wrong, that that was not where he went. And is that, uh, so the neighbor kid said that, is that what Yellowbag also corroborated? Yellowbag worked in 
Des Moines. So he didn't work this same oh, okay. route. Okay, so what's Yellow Bag's contribution to um, everything? We're going to get into it. <laughs> okay. okay, um, okay. He knew some shady characters. Mm. So, so Chris Burge insists that anybody who says that they saw Johnny at Ashworth is wrong. That is not where he picked up. John kind of supports this in the beginning. He's like, oh, yeah, no, now I, now I remember. Like, John did ask if he could have the pickup point moved because it made just sense with mm-hmm. the topography of the land. So, okay. But then he changes his opinion, and I guess that's still in kind of an unknown, but I would think that the register would have documents on that. I don't know. Mm. Now, that means that the same place that Johnny was last seen was the pickup location. Mm, okay. Which means that the van would have dropped the papers off, and then very quickly after that, he would have had to have been abducted. And remember, mm-hmm. none of the papers were delivered. None of them were folded. They were still in their brown paper. Okay, so that stands to reason. Because I would think that one of the things that they said was that the paper boys would go to the pickup spot and they would all roll their papers together. Mm-hmm. Now, it also seems like the car description has kind of changed over time. Like, if you go back through old oh. newspapers, it's originally reported to be a gray car. And then it changed to a mm-hmm. two-tone blue car. And then it changes to a blue and white car. So mm. that just changes with misinformation over time. There's uncertainty about this guy that walks between the houses and if it was even possible to do that and if there were fences there. Like, mm. why would anybody be walking there? Interesting. Again, yeah. I still wonder if, like, people just saw Johnny. Because, again, he's yeah. tall. He looks like an adult male. Yeah, I could uh, see that. And if he was known to cut through the yards yeah. and stuff, yeah. And again, this is all still based on eyewitness testimony and who the fuck mm-hmm. knows. So we will never actually know. I'm getting all, I'm, I'm getting worked up and getting very distracted about things. Um, Aw. So um, who are the two dudes you just mentioned? What's their deal? So the two dudes that I mentioned, so Frank Sakura and Wilbur Milhouse. This is going to go into your Mm -hmm. local thoughts and questions. So the theory has always been, and what people always say is, somebody had to know exactly where Johnny was. They had to know he would be right on that corner at that Mm -hmm. time, this, that, and the other. I'll contend that they probably didn't have to. If somebody was looking to abduct a child, they just had to know that there were going to be children around yeah, it only makes sense if it had to be Johnny. Exactly. And who knows if it actually had to be Johnny. Mm-hmm. But if you were going to be abducting a child, if you did say it had to be Johnny or a child of this age, the paper route plans would probably give you a good idea of where children would be and when, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it turns out there is some kind of good evidence that there was an actual local pedophile ring. Okay. So for the sake of brevity, because this episode is getting really long. In 1985, the Des Moines Register newspaper carrier, Frank Sikora. So this is an adult newspaper carrier. So he was Mm. kind of more of an overseer. Frank Sikora pleads guilty to third degree child sexual abuse and lascivious acts with a minor charges. Oh, wow. He reportedly fondled multiple paper boys that were hired to deliver papers. 
Mm. He would invite newspaper boys from the Des Moines Register over to his home to help them work on the newspapers, and then he would molest them in his home. Ugh. So this is Frank Sikora, somebody that worked mm-hmm. for the Des Moines Register at the time of Johnny's disappearance. Mm-hmm. He admitted this to our shady private investigator, Sam Soda. Mm. Now, here's the thing. Frank Sikora would go on to claim that Sam misrepresented himself. He said that he was a part of the police and that his confession should be dismissed. But once this was taken to court, there were there was enough evidence. He would serve 10 years for this. He would serve 10 okay. years for child sexual abuse charges, for sexually abusing and molesting paperboys. Wow. Okay. And he reportedly worked within the realm of where Johnny worked. Well, that's compelling. Yeah. He had been at the register for seven years at the time of his arrest, so he started in 1978. So he would have been there long enough to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's one pedophile working for the Des Moines Register, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Wilbur Milhouse was a circulation manager at the Des Moines Register. Oh, geez. We learned about Wilbur Milhouse from Yellowbag. Mm. Yellowbag got his name from the yellow newspaper bag that the Des Moines Register paperboys would be given. He mm-hmm. worked for them around the same time as Johnny. He was a couple of years older than Johnny. Yellowbag first claims that while he was working for the Des Moines Register, a man drove up in a car to him and tried to get him to get in. Mm. That would say the man would first ask him for directions and he would say, I don't know. And the man would try to chat him up and then he would say, well, I don't really want to go anywhere. I just want to mess with you. Oh, God. Yeah. Yellowbag ran away. He reported it to his bosses. He apparently would report this to the police after Johnny's disappearance as well. Got it. Okay. Now, what he also shares is that Yellowbag worked with Wilbert Milhouse, the circulation manager, and that Milhouse kind of had a reputation around mm-hmm. town that he kind of would groom boys or give them gifts or try to get them to come over to his house. He apparently would call Yellowbag's house late at night. Wow, gross. And his mom would answer and ask Yellowbag to come over, and his mom would be like, no, this is weird and this is inappropriate. Yeah, Good job, Mrs. Yellowbag. Yeah, good job, Mrs. Yellowbag. Wilbur Milhouse would come to their house on paperboy business. That's weird. No, 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 no. That's not, no. And and, and eventually, Mrs. Yellowbag is like, we're not doing this anymore. And Yellowbag kind of feels like this is really, really strange. He had... Wilbur Milhouse apparently mm-hmm. had tried to like proposition him of like, oh, I got a friend here and he'll give you $100 to drop your pants and you should do it. And 
oh, there's oh, a girl over here, and she says she wants to have grief. sex with you. And yeah, so apparently Millhouse had this reputation. There were enough people around town, Yellowbag's age, that was like, you need to stop like talking to him. And I think Yellowbag mm-hmm. kind of already felt that way. But it was when you're being groomed yeah. like that, it is it's hard. Yeah, yeah, you just don't know what the lines are all the time. And then in 1986, Wilbur Milhouse was arrested for abusing multiple teenage boys, then finally let go of his job at the register. Wow. Okay, so the register has a lot to answer for here. Now, it's largely believed Mm -hmm. that there were allegations about him prior to this at the register, and that instead of firing him or intervening, they just moved him mm-hmm. from Des Moines proper to West Des Moines. West Des Moines. Damn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that gives me such a headache. So, yeah. The Des Moines Register has a lot of shit to answer for, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, they do. They really do. To me, after reading so many stories and hearing so much about this case, that podcast felt much more grounded. So if you have 35 Mm -hmm. hours of time, like I did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Definitely swimming in that kind of time. (laughs) We're not cutting into my five-hour sleep allowance right now or anything. (laughs) I'm so sorry. We are so, so like, but this is me wrapping up. No, this is what we do. You don't have to apologize. So what do you think about those theories about Johnny? Oh, I think they're way more realistic. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think about it kind of working. I, I would want to know how either man traces back to um, Eugene Martin, potentially, if there's yes. any connection yes. in proximity. Certainly mm-hmm. the Wilbur g- was moved from Des Moines proper to West Des Moines, but mm-hmm. Johnny happened before Eugene did. So mm-hmm. I don't know how to trace that necessarily, but I would be very curious to know how much either man would know about both routes. I think that would be my first question. But but I just think it's it's so much more logical to look in one's own backyard when this kind of stuff happens. You know, as every time I think about this case and, and you know, I read about all the theories, I'm like, well, what happened in other cases? Mm-hmm. You know, Sean Hornbeck, it was a weird situation. Somebody drove across state lines just to find a random boy. Mm. Maybe it was that. In the Hobbs Tobias case, it was, oh, this is just like a young serial killer. Mm-hmm. Was it that? Yeah. Even in the Erica Baker case, it was just a freak accident. Yeah. Was it that? We still don't have the remains from that case. Yeah. So there's so many possibilities before I can get to this is mk ultra right yeah no i think that's exactly right and i think there's um i think the lack and i would be curious to know like what efforts have ever been really made to search for remains i don't think there have been much mm-hmm. um i don't think so and so one interesting interesting i think uh now that you mentioned that an organization i can't remember who it was requested dna from john and noreen mm-hmm. So that in case they ever do find remains, yeah. they have something to compare it to. Yeah, for sure. John gave his DNA quickly and said, yes, I want to I want to know, like, fucking run it through whatever database you yeah, have. Yeah, for sure. Noreen has refused. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. She's holding on to the hope so hard that he's just going to come home like he supposedly did that day in 97. I mean. I know. That's what that is. Without a doubt. And I don't mean to be too critical of Noreen, but I really do feel like she is so. The story that has been created is such a part of her identity. Mm -hmm that I think she protects it in the way that she could not protect Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I think that she really, really, really wants to believe the absolute best case scenario for this case. Mm -hmm. Um, That the thing in 97 really happened, that the pictures really were him, that her DNA doesn't matter because he'll just come home someday. You know, I believe Mm -hmm. that she believes that. I really do. I think the reason why you don't see more documentaries and things like that about this case is because Noreen feels like she owns this story. Mm-hmm. And and okay, like it is her son, so yeah, does that's she? Her kid, she does own the story. I mean, but but does John own the story? Right. Can he? Oh, he owns it just as much. You know. Yeah. And with with them being kind of at such an impasse with this, mm-hmm. it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's so tricky. It's so tricky. Like, yeah, John owns it just as much, but John's not going to chase it down as much in the media, you know. Mm-hmm. But he's never wanted to. Yeah. But in so many ways, he really played it. And I don't mean played like flippantly. I I mean that his actions would be so much more advantageous to an effective investigation. Like, mm-hmm. he's compliant, yeah. he gives the best information that he can, he's got reasons for what he, you know, what he thinks, that kind of stuff. Like, if the investigation was legit and solid, John would be mm-hmm. a great, great asset to it. And yes. the fact that there just yeah. wasn't that solid investigation means that he will never get that same spotlight that Noreen gets. Because the lack of investigation is what gives Noreen's narrative power. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's what fuels the conspiracies and Mm. everything else. And again, like not to demean any of those conspiracies. We like we live in a post Epstein world. We can't act like, you know, sex trafficking isn't real. It always has been. Mm -hmm. Um, But absolutely. But I think when you look at and you just like reduce down the. You know, like when you have a case like this where there's just so little evidence and so little fact to go on, like I think what we have to do at that point is reduce it down to the most logical scenarios, right? Because that's all we have Mm -hmm. to go on. And I would not be surprised if uh, Wilbur and Frank were working together. Um, Mm -hmm. If that is what went down, if that is the case, I would wonder if there were others that were kidnapped and never got home you know yeah i wonder if this you know was what happened to johnny an escalation Mm -hmm. was it an impulse control thing was it a revenge thing you know there's one of the things that is said by yellow bag is that millhouse told him um something along the lines of Johnny would be alive if he could keep his if he could have kept his mouth shut. Mm. And he reportedly said that to Mil- to Yellow Bag and around his mother. Wow, that's interesting. It, it's it, it's really interesting 
And I don't necessarily know how to take it. Is that bravado? Is he trying to take credit for something? Is she trying to scare someone? Because there's also not any evidence that Johnny was afraid of anybody at the register Mm. or acting any different or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I think if he was afraid, he would have insisted that his dad come with him that morning. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I think, too. And he obviously didn't have that fear if he told his dad, like, no, 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 just stay home because I want to be quick. So Mm -hmm. I... uh yeah. I think it was probably random, impulsive, random in the yeah. sense that it maybe wasn't necessarily going to happen that day. Um, but I think it was probably like semi-planned. Yeah. I think maybe it didn't have to be Johnny. Maybe they, it didn't have to be Johnny, but any boy at that time. Mm-hmm. And Johnny just happened to be alone on that street corner. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that's the most plausible scenario given what we have. Mm-hmm. yeah what's interesting is so in the faded out podcast they they talk to john they try to reach out to noreen but she gets very aggressive with them mm. but they talk to john and ron sampson the investigator they talk to sam soda the other pi and after the podcast all those three men get together and they start chatting and mm. they start trading notes and i hope that they kind of continue that conversation yeah. and that they kind of start to reopen that but i know it's a wound for john gosh yeah absolutely it's a wound to reopen so much time has gone by and i think that um you know like there's a part of me that really empathizes with noreen because i too always want to look for the best case scenario you know like i think Mm -hmm. i've kind of naturally gravitated towards these survivor stories because that is what works for my spirit you know (laughs) Um, I think that there's extremely microscopic possibility that Johnny Gosh is still alive and the same with Eugene Martin. So if this is reopened and looked at as a search and recovery for remains, I think that there's a possibility that they could close it in, in, you know, the foreseeable future. And see, I think that I, my heart tends to empathize a little bit more with John's thought of if he was taken i would rather that he had died quickly Mm -hmm. than go through a life like what is described yeah i would empathize with that too absolutely yeah so it's and i think that that's kind of what this comes down to and when you read message boards and chats boards and everything like that and people say well why do you believe this Mm -hmm. and they'll say well i just i really i believe noreen's heart or you know things like that and I get that when I take myself out of my kind of default state, Mm -hmm. but my default state is like, I can't because it doesn't add up. Yeah. I mean, my default state is like, there's, it's, it's both and not either or like I can believe in Noreen's heart and also know that it's not logic, you know? Yeah. I don't think that Noreen can do that. Right. And also again, if it was my kid, Mm-hmm. I don't know how logically I would ever be able to act. Oh, I think I would be completely. <laughs> if it was your kid. Oh my gosh. I would be a lunatic. Like I I would like to think that I would channel my energy into forming things like Nekmek, but probably I would just be so devastated and beside myself that it wouldn't be a possibility. I like to think that I would go like neurotic Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And try to channel my energy that way, but 
that's what I like to think. Yeah, yeah. Not right. what, not <laughs> reality necessarily. Yeah. So I just think it's, exactly at the end of the day, like I just always want to make sure to recognize like her contributions to. Oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think her contributions and John did play a role mm-hmm. in all of that, and oh, yeah. he was there. I think people criticize him that he wasn't as involved and he didn't want to be there as much. He also had to be the one earning the money and he was he had to do a lot of just the day-to-day grind. Yeah. And I think that that deserves a lot of attention and a lot of appreciation too. I mean, yeah, totally. again, the gosh has changed the way that we investigate crimes. Yeah. I stand both just in two separate compartments. <laughs> All right, we should wrap this up because this is a long one and you are tired. I'm so tired and Satan Cat is over here just sleeping and I'm so jealous. And tomorrow is my first day back at school after spring break, so I'm just... Hopefully nobody bites me tomorrow. Yeah, I hope not. I hope not. Good luck. Thanks. Good luck to you. I hope nobody bites you. Yeah, me too. You can never... There's never a guarantee when you teach high school, so we'll just hope. Yeah. I feel like preschool and high school are basically the same. They, I think they really are. Yeah, I think they really are. All right, let's segue us into a transition. What are we doing next week? Uh, next week is going to be, I think, very interesting. Plays right into my wheelhouse of legislative and judicial geekery. We, we will be coming back to the Hoosier state of Indiana. We will be, <gasps> yes. I love this case. I'm so excited. We will be exploring the interesting landscape of a feticide case here in Indiana that really shook up how we look at this legislation in our state and elsewhere. We're going to have a convo about little Mike Pence. Yes. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. It's going to be. It's interesting for sure. And it all happened while I was actually living here. So. Like, I just remember all of it rolling out, and I was like, what is happening? So that'll be uh, that'll be next week, so please come back for that. I'm excited because this is one that I know, too. So, yeah, yeah we could have a little bit more back and forth. I love that. I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, come back for that. It's going to be super-duper exciting or super-duper interesting. Yeah. I won't say we exciting. We won't say exciting because it's, 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 a, it's a little rough, but – it's it's rough. It's a very cerebral case too, yeah. just to kind of figure out like, okay, what's happening legislatively? Yes, which you know me, I Ugh. love that. Yeah. All right, so come back for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've been doing some heavy hitters. Man. We really have. We need like a we need an old timey soon. That tends to like. I got one on the back burner. I got I got some like old western stuff. Ah, old midwestern stuff old midwestern stuff i almost wanted to do wyatt earp just like for a romp but (laughs) (laughs) that would be cute we can do it one day anyway someday someday. so yeah come back we've been someday we know we've been doing the heavy hitters lately but you know that's why we're here it's true crime man what do you expect yeah we love you we hope you're taking care of yourself amongst all of this yeah absolutely and we have to too you know for sure so so we are gonna go take care of our lovely pets and then go to bed i'm not doing anything with these animals i'm just going to bed you go be a good pet owner i'm going to bed he's snoring and twitching and it's so cute murder box is already asleep (laughs) all right so check us out on the socials we've been like genuinely loving engaging with all of you guys it's so cool we really appreciate it yeah 
Um, so mid wretched everywhere. Yep. Follow us, love us, talk to us. We love it. Review us, please. Give us those yeah. beautiful stars. We need them and we love we them. We love stars. We do love stars. Yeah, even if you don't write anything, just give us the stars. Yeah, we like stars. I'm still like a child that just needs gold star stickers. Yes, yes, totally. So, yeah, please come back. We're glad you're here. Uh, should we sign off? Yay. Let's sign off. Because I'm, I'm falling tired asleep. and I need to pee. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> same. Okay. Well, as always, people, be nice. Eat cheese. And we love, we love you. you. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm just going to start mine rendering and I'm going to go to bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love you. she's like this i'm not like this she's the mean one i'm the mean one mick is the mean one yeah that's not true i'm terrible